Today, in keeping with our series on the book of Acts, we're going to look at Paul's fateful entry into Jerusalem. Just like Jesus entered into Jerusalem knowing it was going to be a tough week, Paul enters into Jerusalem towards the end of his ministry knowing that that is going to be a very difficult situation. So let's look at the Apostle Paul's triumphal entry, in quotes, to Jerusalem. So let's go to Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17. Here's where Paul says goodbye to the Ephesian elders. He's been working with the church in Ephesus for a long time. He's built tremendous relationships there. He is now saying goodbye to them. So let's go to verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. So who is telling Paul to go to Jerusalem? The Spirit. So God is telling Paul to go to Jerusalem. All right, verse 23. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. So he says he doesn't know what's going to happen, except he knows that prison and hardship are facing him. So he knows it's not going to go real well. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. So Paul is not worried about his personal comfort when he goes to Jerusalem. He is worried about finishing the task that God has given him. That task is to testify to the gospel of God's grace. He knows that if he's going to testify to the gospel, he needs to do that in Jerusalem because that is the holy center and he has to be there to be able to proclaim the truth. And so he's going to go to Jerusalem to finish the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Verse 25, he continues to say goodbye to the Ephesian elders. Now, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. So how does he think it's going to go in Jerusalem? He knows he's never going to see them again. So again, that's a pretty, pretty tough sign. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. So he's saying, I won't see you again. You carry the ball now. You take care of it. So Paul says goodbye to the Ephesian elders. Now, Paul, compelled by the Spirit, is going to Jerusalem. Everyone else tells him not to go to Jerusalem. So let's read that. We'll jump to chapter 21, verse 3. So Paul is traveling, and uh, here's some of the accounts of that travel. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. So they found the Christians, and they stayed with them. 
Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So these believers tell Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Who is the inspiration behind their message to urge Paul not to go on to Jerusalem? Through the Spirit. So the Spirit is compelling Paul to go to Jerusalem, and these people are urging Paul not to go to Jerusalem by the Spirit. How exactly does that work? Doesn't this seem a little odd? Well, let's keep going. Jump down to verse 8. So they continue on this journey. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. So now there's a specific prophetic word with a nice word picture. Don't go to Jerusalem. So what's going on? Paul is compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, and everybody else is saying, by the Spirit, don't go to Jerusalem. Well, here's what's going on. There is a different interpretation of the same message. The message from the Spirit is, the owner of this belt will be bound, and bad things are going to happen to him. And then the interpretation is, so don't go. Paul got that same message. Prison and hardships are awaiting you. And his interpretation was, all right, well, I better get ready then. Because I'm going to Jerusalem. I better be ready for some prison and hardships. And so Paul interpreted the message from the Spirit as, I better get stronger. I better get ready. I better be prepared to go through the trial. And the other ones interpreted it as, you better avoid the trial. You better run away from the trial. Now, the same message from the Spirit had very different interpretations. Sometimes God's plan isn't for us to avoid the struggle but it's for us to be ready for it. God will give us the strength to be able to walk through the trial sometimes rather than cause us to avoid the trial. Paul was not focused on what would be easiest for him. He was focused on completing the task that God had given him. And so he makes his rebuttal. Verse 13. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Paul was going to finish the race. He was going to complete the task. He was excited about being a person who would do what God called him to do, whatever that meant. And so he was going to Jerusalem and he was prepared and ready and strong and wanted to face whatever opposition would be there because he was ready. Everybody else wanted him to avoid it, but he said, no, I'm going. So God strengthened Paul to be able to go through the trial. This is very similar to what we see in the situation with Jesus after the Last Supper when they go to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus prays. Let's look at that in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. How is Jesus feeling at this moment? 
sorrowful to the point of death. Other places it describes that his sweat was like drops of blood. He was in an extremely stressed situation. Now, I don't think we fully realize what he was about to face. We can understand scourging and crucifixion and death, but he was also going to bear the sins of the world. And he was going to have his father in heaven turn his back on him. And I don't think we can have a picture or an understanding of what that would mean for Jesus to be separated from the father and to bear the iniquity of the world. And so he sees this in front and he's going to it and he needs to pray. And he asks the three, stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So we see that same dynamic of walk through the trial or avoid the trial. Jesus requests to avoid the trial. Now, he does say, your will be done. And there was a plan. But Jesus is thinking, as he's facing this, hey, Father, you can do anything. You're all powerful, because if there's another way, that'd be great. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Verse 40. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Why did Jesus have the disciples pray? explains it right here. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Jesus knew they were going to go through a trial too. It wasn't just going to be him that was going through a difficult time as he is captured and tried and scourged and crucified, but the disciples were going to go through a trial as well. And they needed to pray and have the strength to walk through that trial because they weren't going to be able to avoid it. And so they needed to be strong. And so why the disciples needed to pray was so that they would have the strength to walk through the trial in victory rather than be crushed by it. Sometimes the trial is just going to happen. And the question is whether or not we'll be strong enough to walk through it in victory or whether we'll be crushed by it. Let's keep reading. Verse 42. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. So we see a shift. Don't we see a shift in how Jesus is praying? The first time it leaned towards the, oh, please take the cup away. And I think he got the answer, no. So he checks with his boys. They're sleeping. And he begins to pray differently the second and third time. Well, if this isn't going to be taken away, your will be done. And he starts to become strengthened rather than trying to avoid. Verse 43. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Then Judas shows up, betrays Jesus with a kiss, and he is captured. And these disciples wake up into this. No wonder they had trouble handling the moment. They hadn't been praying. They hadn't been being strengthened. They were asleep, and all of a sudden, all this mayhem is going on. They just woke up in the middle of the night to mayhem. It'd be hard to handle it. What would have been different if the disciples had been able to stay diligent and pray is they would have been able to walk through the trial in victory rather than being thrown off and confused and flee. Jesus got prepared. The apostle Paul got prepared because they had tasks that God the Father had given them. And my question to each one of us this morning is, what task has the Lord given you? 
Might there be trials and difficulties involved in what God has called you to do? How do we win? I would like to win. Paul himself said, run the race in such a way as to get the prize. How do we win? We talked about this a a month or two ago. We win not by having everything work out perfect and be comfortable and easy. We win by staying faithful through the process. We win by loving Jesus to the end, no matter what comes our way. That's when we win. When we stay faithful and we stay diligent to the call and we stay in love with Jesus to the end, whatever disappointments or hardships we may face, we win when we stay faithful. Jesus stayed faithful, of course. Paul stayed faithful. The tasks we have, we must stay faithful. We all have a calling before God. That calling has two parts. First, God calls us to be a particular type of person. He calls us not to do something first, but he calls us to be someone first. To be people of faith, to be people of love, to be people of joy, to be people who have the fruits of the Spirit, to have a certain character, a certain strength. God calls us to be a certain type of person. And then he calls us to tasks to accomplish. He calls us into specific activities and callings. And we can be in different stages of that calling. So the Apostle Paul, he didn't go into Jerusalem every day. You know, this was a special situation. He'd been to Jerusalem before. One time he went out to Arabia for like three years just to get revelation from God. It was his stage to learn and grow in Christ. He needed to take that time. He wasn't running around doing missionary journeys at that point. He's just by himself out in the desert, just trying to hear from God and reorder his thinking because he had a huge paradigm shift. What stage are you in, in your calling? Are you in the preparing stage, the beginning stage, the growing stage? Maybe you're in a healing stage, a persevering stage, a resting stage. Maybe a finishing stage like Paul was here. Do the thing that makes sense for where you're at. If it's a preparing stage, be diligent in preparing. Learn the word of God. Learn to pray and see what happens. Learn to be a person of faith. Learn to forgive. Learn how to do those things. And you're preparing yourself for the moment when you'll be given a specific task. Now, isn't it neat that God involves us in his plan. Isn't it neat that we get to serve God in this life and have eternal significance in the things that we do? We don't have a pointless life. We're not just here killing time until we finally get to go to heaven. We have eternally significant, important things that we're called to do. That's very exciting, and it's a two-edged sword because with a great calling comes great responsibility. If God really is depending on us to do things that have eternal significance, then we were responsible to do those things that have eternal significance. Again, back to the Ephesian elders, Acts 26 and 27. Paul says, therefore, I declare to you that today I am innocent of the blood of all men. How could he be guilty of the blood of all men? By not discharging the call that God gave him. Verse 27, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. He was called to present the will of God, to bring the revelation of the new covenant to the world. He was part of that, one of the apostles. He's Paul, and so he was called to do that. And if he hadn't done that, he would have been guilty. But because he proclaimed the whole will of God, not just the stuff that people liked, but the whole will of God, 
then he is innocent of the blood of all men. It's very similar to the calling that Ezekiel received back in the Old Testament. That's the dry bones book. And Ezekiel in chapter three describes his calling from God. It's a very direct calling. Ezekiel three, starting in verse 16. At the end of the seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Ezekiel is given the position, the task of being a watchman over the house of Israel. It's a very important task. It's a very significant calling. And it continues. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die. And you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life. That wicked man will die for his sin and I will hold you accountable for his blood. So Ezekiel is responsible to warn the wicked man. If he does not warn the wicked man, then Ezekiel is guilty. Verse 19. But if you do warn the wicked man and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his evil ways, he will die for his sin, but you will have saved yourself. So God is saying to Ezekiel as a watchman, even if you don't succeed, but you try, you're in the clear. You're responsible to present the message. How they respond to it is their responsibility. Verse 20. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and does evil, and I put a stumbling block before him, he will die. Since you did not warn him, he will die for his sin. The righteous things he did will not be remembered, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. Verse 21. But if you do warn the righteous man not to sin, and he does not sin, he will surely live because he took warning. And you will have saved yourself. So we see here a great calling with great responsibility. And what I see in this is how much God loves the wicked and how much God loves the backslider because he's not willing to let them go unwarned. And he's going to be very harsh with the watchman and say, you'd better warn them because I care about them and I don't want them just wandering off into nothing. God loves the wicked and the backslider enough to judge those who are supposed to warn them, but who do not. Now, what is the normal Christian's calling? You know, we have specific callings. Not everyone's called to be a preacher in front of people, you know, or be a missionary or these different things. But what's the normal Christian calling? Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, go to verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Amen. A new creation. We don't have to worry about staying in repentance and feeling bad for our past. We are made new. We're in the forgiveness of God and the love of God. Verse 18. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So here, if we are a new creation, we're made new, the old is gone, the new has come, then we understand what it's like to be born again, to be reconciled to God, to be set free from the past and the bondage that's there. And so then we have a calling, a ministry of reconciliation. We can help people go through the same thing. I've been set free from the past and been reconciled to God. I can help you be reconciled to God. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. So this ministry of reconciliation that we have is an ambassador ministry. We are Christ's ambassadors. That's a high calling. And it carries heavy responsibility. What if all the ambassadors just went home and watched reruns of Three's Company? 
If we are ambassadors for Christ, it's a high calling. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So he's charging them and he's appealing to them at the same time. There's going to be a variety of people listening to the letter. It says, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the crucifixion and the resurrection. Our old body of sin is crucified with Christ and we're made new. We're made the righteousness of God. Now, don't get nervous. It's kind of heavy, don't you think? Don't get nervous. Because here's the deal. You can have it all. You can have it all. You can have a powerful calling. That calling may be hidden in normal everyday tasks, but you can have a powerful calling. One of the most powerful callings is to be a godly parent. That is hidden inside of normal things. How you teach your kids to do the dishes, normal things, learning how to go to church and pray and that sort of stuff, normal things, but a high calling. You can have a high calling in Christ and you can be faithful to that calling. Then if you're faithful, you'll get to see some fruit. You'll get to see some people will respond. Some people won't, but some will. And then there is great reward. We can have it all. We can have a high calling from God. We can live a life of faithfulness to God. We can see the fruit of that in this life, and we can have a great reward from God when it's all over. We can have it all. There's no reason to be nervous. There's no reason to be afraid. There is no reason because What will God do with the good and faithful servant every time? He will welcome them in and say, come and rejoice with me. He'll be excited about that every time. How often does God reject good and faithful servants? Never, never, ever, ever. If we're a good and faithful servant, we know that we are in a good spot. Let's just talk about the parable of the talents briefly. A great calling brings great responsibility but great faithfulness to that call brings great reward. In the parable of the talents, Jesus was describing the kingdom of God and he said it's like, it's like a landowner who went away and who gave a bunch of money to different servants. To one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, to another he gave one. The one with the five immediately put it to work, gained five more. The one with the two immediately put it to work, gained two more. The one with the one buried it in the ground. How did it go for that guy? It didn't go well. Let's read that. Matthew 25, starting verse 28. Take the town from him and give it to the one who has the 10. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. Does that seem fair to you? Here's the deal. When we draw close to God, he adds things to us. When we walk away from God, we lose things. And then verse 30. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Are you starting to understand why God is so harsh with people doing nothing with their call? It's because he loves the people they're supposed to reach. It's because he cares about those that they're supposed to bring healing to. It's because he loves those that they're supposed to warn. He loves them. Paul doesn't want to be guilty. Ezekiel doesn't want to be guilty. Here in Matthew, Jesus is explaining it through the parable of the talents. We don't want to be guilty for having done nothing. Instead, we want to know that we can be completely free from the fear of being rejected by God on judgment day. And again, you can be completely free 
because God will treat every good and faithful servant the same way every time. And that's the one we have control over. God gives us a calling. That's up to him. We can be faithful to that call. We have control over that. Then there's the fruit. We can't make that happen. We know if we stay diligent, there will be some fruit. And then there's the reward that comes from God. The thing we have control over is the faithfulness part. That's the piece of the puzzle that's up to us. And God treats the faithful the same every time. Matthew 25, 23. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Well done. Come and share your master's happiness. That is the way God responds to every good and faithful servant every time, 100%. Never, ever do you have to be afraid. Instead, be faithful. We're going back to the Apostle Paul. You remember he said goodbye to the Ephesian elders. He said, I'll never see your face again, so you carry the ball now. I'm not guilty. I've proclaimed the full will of God. Now you do that. I've got something else I've got to do, and I know I'll never see you again. So he leaves, and he never did see them again, but he did get to write them a letter. After he went to Jerusalem, and after he went to prison, he got to write them a letter. Imagine getting that letter. And it said a lot of different things. But one of the things in that letter was Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He says to his dear friends, his brothers and sisters in the Lord, come on now, you live a life worthy of the calling. And that's a message for us as well. That's the thing we can do. We don't get to choose the calling. We don't get to force the fruit to happen. Jesus is the one that's bringing his reward. All we can do is live the life. We can be faithful to the God that loves us. We can be faithful to the God who puts things in our hands and lets us do them. We can be faithful.